Welcome to ReachMD. This activity, provided by Medtelligence, is part of a series focusing on expert perspectives on the ACC late-breaking clinical trials. The COVID-19 pandemic represents a significant and unique challenge for the cardiology community. For the first time in history, the American College of Cardiology had to cancel their scientific sessions due to the pandemic and instead organized a three-day virtual meeting during which practice change and clinical trials were featured. And today we'll be discussing highlights from six of those trials. Welcome to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Michael Gibson, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And joining me today are Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Carolyn Lamb. Dr. Bhatt is the Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Carolyn Lamb is the Senior Consultant of the National Heart Center in Singapore and Professor of Duke NUS Cardiovascular Academic Clinical Programs. Dr. Bott, Dr. Lamb, it's great to have you both on. It's really great to be here with you, Mike, especially at this time. Likewise. Thanks, Thanks, Carolyn. Well, let's jump right in. Carolyn, you're a heart failure expert. Talk to us about some of the findings from the Victoria study. I'd love to tell you about Victoria. So as you said, it was presented virtually as a late-breaking trial. It randomized 5,050 patients with worsening chronic rest to receive verisiguat or placebo, uh, verisiguat being a soluble guanylase cyclase stimulator, and with the primary outcome being a composite of cardiovascular death or first heart failure hospitalization. So I think the first thing I really want to point out about Victoria is it was a high-risk heart failure population, which few prior trials have really addressed. Two-thirds were enrolled within three months of a heart failure hospitalization. 60% were on triple therapy. 90% were on dual therapy. 15% already had an ARNI. 30% had a device. So this was a really well-treated high-risk heart failure population with a median anti-proBNP of 2,000. 800. So over a median follow-up of only about 10 and a half months, the targeted number of events was already achieved, with a primary event occurring in 35.5% in the verisiguat group and 385 in the placebo group. And that was a significant reduction with a hazard ratio of 0.90. In other words, a relative risk reduction of 10%. Now, here's where it's important to remember that the population we're talking about because the annualized primary event rates I just mentioned are three times higher than that of, for example, paradigm heart failure or DAPA-HF. And the NT-PO-BNP was almost two times higher than in those prior trials. Thus, even though the relative risk reduction may seem modest of 10%, it actually translates into a clinically meaningful absolute risk reduction, and that was 4.2% per year, meaning an annual number needed to treat of only 24 to prevent this composite of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. And remember, this was on top of excellent therapy. And the final point was very sick, what was generally safe and well-tolerated. There was a little bit more tendency for symptomatic hypotension and syncope and more anemia with very sick, what, but the Serious adverse events were similar to placebo. Importantly, no adverse effects, electrolytes, or renal function, remembering that this included patients all the way down to an EGFR of 15, lower than we've been before. And
And at 12 months, that 10 milligram target dose of Verisigrat was achieved in in 90% of patients similar to placebo. So I really think Clyde Yancey, who was the commenter at the Late Breaker, said it best. He said, we've got another win for HEPREF. And, and, you know, I agree. It's a new pathway. It's stimulating a good thing. It's stimulating cyclic GMP rather than blocking the bad stuff with all our renin angiotensin blockers and so on. It's a high-risk patient group with significant unmet needs and very sick what's once daily, easy to titrate, safe, well-tolerated, no need to monitor renal function. So I think it is an important novel addition to our guideline-based treatments for HEFRA. Yeah, and a number needed to treat of only 24, quite impressive. Come on, talk to us a little bit about Paragon heart failure. Ah, Mike, you'll remember discussing Paragon with me when it just came out at the ESC. And as a reminder to everyone, Paragon randomized a bit more than 4,800 patients with HEP-TEST to receive secubitral valsartan or valvasartan, and it narrowly missed its primary composite outcome, which was cardiovascular death and total heart failure hospitalization, with that infamous p-value of 0.059. And I think you'll remember what was really talked about was that significant heterogeneity with possible benefits of secubitral valsartan in patients with a lower ejection fraction and in women in particular. So at the ACC, there were some follow-ups to this that I think are clinically relevant. So one of them presented as an oral session that was streamed online, focused on NT-proBNP, and basically showed that baseline NT-proBNP, as you may expect, predicted events in HEF-TEST, and secubitral valsartan reduced NT-proBNP by 90% versus valsartan. But importantly, NT-proBNP did not appear to identify the patients most likely to benefit from secubitrovalsartan. In other words, it didn't modify the relationship or the treatment effects, and it did not explain the differences between men and women or higher and lower EF. There was another presentation that was a moderated poster that focused on systolic blood pressure, really asking, is there a sweet spot? systolic blood pressure and HEF-TEF, and were the potential benefits of secubitral valsartan mediated by blood pressure reduction? Well, the short answer is a mean, a baseline, a mean achieved systolic blood pressure of 120 to 129 millimeters mercury appeared to identify that lowest risk patients with HEF-TEF, so that may be the sweet spot. But baseline blood pressure did not modify the treatment effect, and blood pressure lowering did not account for the effects of secubitral valsartan either. One more is focusing on age. This was a poster on demand, and, and it really points out that we may need to watch out for blood pressure in some patients, particularly the elderly. So it basically looked at the influence of age and showed that the efficacy of secubitral valsartan relative to valsartan was not modified by age, but hyperkalemia and renal dysfunction were actually lower with sacubitral valsartan regardless of age, and hypotension, though, was more frequent among the older patients. So we need to watch that with our older patients. And then finally, because heart failure is becoming such a condition that we need polypharmacy for, there was another poster that looked at outcomes with concurrent mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, or MRA use, in Paragon. So MRA use was in more than a quarter of patients at baseline and increased over the course of the study. And the the short message is the clinical efficacy of secubitral valsartan was consistent regardless of background MRA use. 
Tachybutyl valsartan, in fact, attenuated the decline in GFR over time relative to valsartan with a larger effect size in patients on concomitant MRAs. So clinically, this means addition of Tachybutyl valsartan to MRA is safe without an increased risk of hyperkalemia or worsening renal function. So those are some important messages from ACC. Karen, thanks so much. All right, well, another hot topic has been the use of anticoagulants in the setting of chronic and acute coronary syndromes. Deepak, you presented data from the diabetic subgroup from Compass. Tell us what you found. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is really referring to dual pathway inhibition. Maybe it's a term people aren't so familiar with. Everyone knows about DAPT or dual antiplatelet therapy, but this is a concept of combining an antiplatelet and a low dose of an anticoagulant dual pathway inhibition. And really, it was you, Mike, that brought this strategy into the light with the ATLAS-2 trial showing that a combination of aspirin and what I'll call a vascular dose of rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams twice a day, reduced ischemic events quite significantly in patients presenting with an acute coronary syndrome. That study included a significant reduction in all-cause mortality as well as cardiovascular mortality. That led to the COMPASS trial, that and, and some observations from prior trials like COMPASS, taking that strategy of dual pathway inhibition to study patients with either CAD or PAD. So that's the broad COMPASS trial. And those patients were randomized to either aspirin alone, aspirin plus placebo, but aspirin alone versus aspirin plus that same dose of rivaroxaban. Now, there's another arm, rivaroxaban alone at a lower dose that I won't discuss because that didn't really shine. It didn't look awful, but, but it didn't meet statistical significance. But the winning arm in that three-arm trial was the aspirin and the vascular dose of rivaroxaban. So that's the overall COMPASS trial. Positive study led to the FDA approval of rivaroxaban at that dose in that COMPASS-like population. What was presented at ACC virtually as a late breaker and published simultaneously in circulation was COMPASS diabetes, where we looked specifically at that subgroup of patients with diabetes at enrollment into the study to see how that regimen of dual pathway inhibition compared with aspirin alone. And what we found, first of all, is that the results in both those patients with and without diabetes were, quote-unquote, positive for the primary endpoint. That is, there was a significant reduction in MACE, or major adverse cardiovascular events, in both those subpopulations, those with diabetes encompassed, those without diabetes, and again, everyone had coronary artery disease or peripheral artery disease or both. But what was interesting was even though the relative risk reductions were similar and statistically significant, the absolute risk reduction was larger, numerically speaking, in those with diabetes because of their higher baseline risk by virtue of having diabetes. And what I've been talking about here is the primary endpoint of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke. But if one looks at the endpoint of all-cause death, there, too, there was a consistent relative risk reduction in both those patients with and without diabetes encompassed. However, the absolute risk reduction for mortality was threefold higher in those with diabetes versus those without diabetes. So I think this really illustrates, first of all, the high rate of death in these people with diabetes and concomitant severe atherosclerosis, but the potential benefits of going beyond just aspirin alone. It's a concept that, you know, other trials such as Charisma with aspirin and clopidogrel or Pegasus with aspirin and Ticagrelor had also gotten at. That is, if you've got 
lots of atherosclerosis, even if you're stable, there is a benefit of doing more than aspirin alone. But here, I think we've shown nicely within a regimen that is approved broadly in, in the U.S. and in many regions of the world for this large population of folks with stable atherosclerosis, again, CAD or PAD or both, uh, hopefully at low bleeding risk, otherwise the strategy can backfire, that adding to just aspirin alone in that stable outpatient, you might otherwise say, well, they're doing okay, I'm not going to mess with them, is often the right thing to do. So just a really quick recap of Reduce It, that was an 8,000-plus patient trial. Patients had either established atherosclerosis, could be in their coronaries, their cerebral vasculature, their peripheral arteries, or had to have diabetes and at least one cardiovascular risk factor, so a hybrid secondary prevention, high-risk primary prevention trial. And in addition to those clinical criteria, patients had to have triglycerides that ended up being over 100 milligrams per deciliter or so, so the range of high normal to mildly elevated to moderately elevated triglycerides. The intent was to enroll about a population, say, triglycerides between 135 or 500, but it ended up with about 10% with normal triglycerides. So atherosclerosis or high-risk primary prevention plus elevated triglycerides. Those patients were randomized to icosapentethyl versus placebo. Icosapentethyl being a highly purified ethyl ester of icosapentenoic acid, or EPA, which is an omega-3 fatty acid, but this is a prescription medicine, very tightly sort of manufactured, regulated a composition that's very pure with respect to its EPA. So very distinct, unlike, say, fish oil supplements, which have never been shown to provide any cardiovascular benefit. So that's the overall trial. Overall trial, very positive, significant reductions in ischemic events, ischemic events including things like cardiovascular death, where there was a 20% reduction that was significant, significant reductions in MI, stroke, hospitalization for unstable angina, revascularization, sudden cardiac death, cardiac arrest. So very positive overall trial. What we've done most recently, and what I presented just about a week ago as a late breaker at ACC Virtual, was the EPA, or icosapentenoic acid, levels from the overall reducer trial. The first part looked at baseline levels and showed that the benefits of icosapentethyl versus placebo were consistent across the full range of baseline EPA levels. Why does that matter? Well, some people have said, what if I eat a lot of fish and seafood and am, quote, unquote, naturally getting higher EPA levels? Well, that's true. If you do eat a lot of fish and seafood, your EPA levels will be higher than someone that doesn't. However, even in the highest, say, tertile of EPA levels in our study at baseline, there was still significant and substantial benefit from having been randomized psychosapentethyl versus placebo. So it's not the case that, oh, you can just eat a lot of fish and get the benefits that we observed and reduce it. Uh, there's still incremental benefits even in people that have high baseline EPA levels because of diet or because of other factors we don't really even know, genetics and other things that might contribute to variability in baseline EPA. So that was part one. Pretty interesting, I think, just in terms of applicability of the trial results to populations that might have higher baseline EPA levels. The second part, which I think is scientifically really quite provocative, is that we looked at on-treatment levels of EPA. And what we found were highly statistically significant correlations between on-treatment EPA levels and lower risks of endpoints, such as cardiovascular death, 
MI, stroke, revascularization, hospitalization for unstable angina, sudden cardiac death, and cardiac arrest. So all those endpoints where we saw clinically significant reductions, now we're seeing very strong correlations with attained EPA levels and benefit. Now, going beyond just that, what we also saw was, was in the overall trial, there was a trend towards lower all-cause mortality, which I think would have been significant probably if we just could have kept the trial going a bit longer. And in the large USA subgroup, as published in circulation a couple of months ago, we did, in fact, see a 30% lower all-cause mortality that was significant. But nevertheless, in the overall trial, it was a trend. With our analysis looking at ATA levels, again, a very strong statistically significant correlation with on-treatment EPA and lower all-cause mortality. And as far as the endpoint of heart failure, in the overall trial, it was numerically lower with icosa pentethyl versus placebo, but that wasn't a statistically significant finding. What we found in this EPA-level analysis was, again, a very strong and tight correlation between on-treatment EPA levels and lower rates of hospitalization for heart failure and new heart failure. And just to remind the audience, this is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. All the events were blindly and independently adjudicated by your group, Mike, that you were chairing. So these sorts of endpoints, I think you can take to the bank. They're objectively defined, and we're seeing statistically significant associations here with EPA levels. So I think what we've done is take the results from Reduce It, which really I think were quite remarkable in terms of clinical endpoint reduction, but now provided the mechanistic underpinning of why we might have seen such large risk reductions, both in relative and absolute terms, across a variety of different endpoints, now extending that to heart failure. Fascinating, Deepak, and it makes you wonder if EPA levels themselves are a biologic target. I think it's just absolutely fascinating. Thanks for sharing that with us. I'm going to share the results of a couple of trials. One was Taylor PCI. I think everyone knows that there's a substantial number of people out there who are resistant to clopidogrel. They don't metabolize it well. And in the past, we had tried to identify those patients with platelet testing function to see, well, maybe if we increase the dose or maybe if we switch them to another drug, we can improve outcome. And those studies were not successful. But Taylor PCI tried an entirely different approach. Rather than testing the platelet, this trial did genetic testing. And they randomized people to either just give clopidogrel as you ordinarily would, or they said, we're going to do genotype. And if you are clopidogrel resistant or a metabolizer, we're going to give you titanium. And then they looked at the outcomes at a year. Now, what they found was that in those people who were poor metabolizers, they're focusing just on poor metabolizers in the primary analysis, there was a a significant or trend towards a significant reduction in outcomes, a 1.8% reduction in outcomes, a P of 0.056 at a year, a 2.1% absolute reduction at 30 days, which was highly significant. This is very provocative, and it's the very first genome-guided way of treating ECS and cardiovascular patients. A little bit of a limitation here. A lot of us would have been excited to see the comparison of the conventional strategy 
with a comparison of those who underwent genotyping. That's not what was done in the analysis. It was the non-responders treated with ticagalor versus the non-responders treated with vitigrel. In some ways, that recapitulates what we know with Plato. I do look forward to some more in-depth analysis of the strategy, of the strategy of genotyping versus not. The other trial I wanted to mention was the Voyager DAD trial. And Deepak, you had done a nice job of summarizing Compass Forest. This is not focusing on CAD, but on PAD. And this was about 6,500 patients. Everyone got aspirin, and they had had a recent lower extremity revast, so post revast for PAD. And they either got a vascular dose of rivaroxaban at 2.5 milligrams twice a day or placebo. And they looked at acute limb ischemia, major amputation, death and my stroke. And at three years, there was a significant reduction in that endpoint, down from 19.9 to 17.3, a number needed to treat of only 39. Now, the question that always comes up is, what's the price? Was there excess bleeding? I have to say this was one of the first trials where there was a little bit of a free lunch. There was no excess teeny major bleeding, the primary safety endpoint. The p-value was 0.06. So we always are concerned about the net benefit in these kinds of trials. Here we saw a clear reduction in ischemic endpoints, what I call major adverse vascular events, and a modest numeric but not statistically significant increase in bleeding, which on the whole, I think, makes this a viable strategy. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us in the audience today. It's been great having you. I thought this was a very informative wrap-up. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Terrific doing this with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to ReachMD. This activity was provided by Medtelligence and is part of a series focusing on expert perspectives on the ACC late-breaking clinical trials. To find others in this series, go to reachmd.com slash medtelligence. Thank you for listening.